This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. It's never too late to turn your life around. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm with my guest, Steve. Hi, Tiff. How are you today? I'm great. Uh, How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm real good. Uh, Just to give you a little background about myself, I'm 74 years old, retired from the custom clothing business. I have been married for 50 years to the same woman. And I have three daughters and two granddaughters. My life was pretty good in the beginning. And then some things happened, which led to a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. And that's what we're going to talk about today, because it has been a difficult life, you might say. Yes, I've heard that from many people that have been diagnosed with bipolar. It's it's hard because there's such extreme highs and such extreme lows mm-hmm. and they're hard to to handle. So you said this transformation started around the age of 9? Well, when I was 9 years old, I was sexually assaulted and right after that my first bout of depression hit. This is in fourth grade, and I had no idea what was going on. I was a a pretty good athlete, had a lot of friends, a good student, but all of a sudden I didn't care anything about it. I thought I wanted to die. I was worthless. Nobody loved me. And this went on for several months, and those listening cannot imagine what it is to be that depressed. I can tell you all day long what I felt like, but you won't understand. They won't understand how bad it really is. So that went on for a few months. And then uh, for the rest of my grade school, it really went pretty well. And I want to tell you something. When I was sexually assaulted, what I decided to do was to tell nobody. I locked it away in my mind. I was only nine years old. What did I know what to do? I thought it was my fault. Do you mind if I ask who who did the assault? Well, I don't know. I was at a movie theater on a Saturday with my friend, and I went to go get a Coke, and a guy bought my Coke for me and said, I need to show you something. Stupid me. He said, okay. And then he took me into the restroom. I don't know what the guy looked like. I have... I guess that's one of the good things about it, because I don't have an image of him surfacing in my mind all the time. I have no idea who he was, and I have no idea of what all he did to me. I know some of the things, but I don't know what all what all happened. So I decided to never tell anybody, and I didn't for, this is 1958, about 30 years. My wife didn't know until 2015. 
You know, it's kind of amazing what your mind can tell you to do. And at that young age, I had no idea what happened. I didn't even know that kind of stuff could go on. So anyway, I got, you got to realize that bipolar is like big highs and big lows, but I was never manic myself. So I just had fairly high, not not the destructive high mania and deep, deep low. So because when you're in mania, you think you got the world by whatever, and uh, you go out and spend all kind of money, you buy cars, uh, you hurt people, you ruin your marriage, and you come down with a big thud, and your whole life is screwed up, and you're in debt, and that's the way it is. And at that time, you then go into a deep depression, and can't do anything, like I've already said. And then the mania comes back. So it's like a roller coaster ride that no one wants to take. So luckily, I never had the mania. I had just a deep depression. Um, so for the next two or three years, that's kind of the way it went. But it was never as bad at that time as the first depression. And then I got into ninth grade and it got really bad. And I don't know how the hell I ever graduated from high school, let alone get into a college. And I went to school at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida, and got through it okay, and my grades were okay. But I would have sporadic depression episodes. Then I, right after I graduated, is the time that it was the worst of my entire life. I got out of college and started having uh, suicidal ideations. And I was, I was a swimmer for almost all my life. And I would, one day I went to the pool and got in this, started swimming laps. And every lap, a voice in my head would say, kill yourself, kill yourself. And that led to an altercation with my father where a knife was involved. And the next thing I knew, I woke up in the hospital. It's called Harding Hospital. It's, it was in Worthington, Ohio. I live in Delaware. I used to live in Delaware, Ohio. So Worthington was about 15 minutes. And it was a pretty famous uh, psychiatric hospital in that it had basketball court. It had a tennis court. Uh, had a lot of, lot of different stuff because their belief at that time was a combination of therapy, medication, and hard work. So we would get up in the morning, everybody would run and do calisthenics and work out. Then you'd be sent out to do some physical labor. They had about 40 acres, so we had to go over all the 40 acres. And and anyway, what that did for me was to get rid of the suicidal ideations. Oh, I want to tell you something. This is, this is kind of important to know how psychiatrists can screw up. When I was in my intake, to go into the hospital, I had a psychiatrist who I didn't know that whoever was on duty at the time. And he says, Steve, I've, I just want to tell you, this will only last four weeks and then it will go away. Fifty years later, I'm still waiting for it to go away. So sometimes I just screw up. 
That's something that never goes away. You're going to, it's a lifelong journey right there. Right. Did they at least help you process what happened to you? Help you try to discover anything? Or was it literally just keep you busy and pray for the best? No, we had, I had, there were, there were a few medications back then. None of them worked for me. In fact, as I recall, every one of them made me very sick, like the flu, a bad, bad flu. But as I recall, there were only a handful of medications, not like it is today. He had my regular psychiatrist uh, diagnosed me with uh, clinical depression in 1972. That's when they start trying all of those drugs and none of them worked and I got worse and worse and worse. So in 1978, after six years of going through all that, psychiatrist and I met for a therapy session, and he said, you know what? I think I made a mistake. I think you're bipolar. Well, hell, I didn't know what bipolar was. Never heard of it before. I don't think anybody heard of it before, but maybe the psychiatrist. But uh, he immediately put me on lithium, and I got about 50% better overnight. Mm-hmm. So the suicidal never came back. Uh, I was able to function. Uh, there were quite a few things that didn't it didn't work on, such as ruminations. And, and if you want to know what ruminations are, it's the the mind just thinking over and over and over about the bad thing and the thing you screwed up, and you you can't get it out of your mind until maybe never, or until you fix it. And when you fix it, when you screw up again, the idea, the, the ruination to come back. But at least I was able to function and uh, go on from there. Right. Did you ever tell your parents what happened? No, my parents were oblivious to everything. I had very little support at home, which you must know, is very important to find. If you don't have any support, everything gets worse, and I had none. Combination of not understanding and also other things to do and worry about. So I didn't have any of that. It's a shame. Yeah, it it was a shame. When I went into the hospital, uh, my parents wouldn't tell anybody where I was or what was going on. They only came to visit me once, and it was kind of like, I realized this is 1970. Times were different back then, as bad as you think it is today on how people look at mental illness, make it times for that back then. So I was a, uh, well, I was just a blot on their image that had to be put away. And, and I'll tell you, I uh, grew up in a very well-to-do family. Uh, this this bipolar disorder takes anybody it can get a hold of. Oh. You, don't have, you don't have to be well-off. Uh, you can be anybody, and it'll just grab you. And once it does, there's no cure. There's treatment, but it's going to be with you forever. You think this is something that people are born with, or this was affected by trauma? Well. I've looked into that over these years, and I think it's a combination of the genes you have from your predecessors and the trauma. 
I don't think you can leave out the trauma, and I don't think you can leave out uh, your ancestry. Also, there's a makeup that each one of us has and how we deal with things, and that's part of it too. So you can't just say that one day this bipolar disease jumped out at me and said, I'm taking you over. It's just there are reasons. But the problem is you can't find anybody who really knows the answer. Be something interesting to look into. Because I know like multiple personalities, stuff like that, that comes from trauma. So maybe it also triggers other mental disorders, psychopathy, or who knows? You you did psychotherapy, right? Yes, a lot of it. When I was first in the hospital, I think I was going three times a week. And it helped, but there just wasn't enough to, there weren't enough medications to help. So nowadays there's a lot, but still, If you really want to know the truth, only 50% of those with mental illness get help from the medication. The other 50%, I was one of the 50% that got help, but the other 50% has to do it with treatments that don't involve medication. Uh, I can never think of Whenever I get on one of these podcasts, I can never think of the ones that they have. But anyway, they have DBT and and EBT and all these. And you can go to groups that all work together. Not I'm not talking about a uh, a support group, but you can go to groups where they do magnetic things and they do light things and all. It all helps and. The thing about a lot of people is medication doesn't work right away, so they quit, and or they're going along, and they decide, oh, I don't need to take this medication anymore. I'm doing just fine. And then there are the people who don't believe in medication. All these people fall through the cracks, and they don't get help. And a whole bunch of them don't believe in therapy. A whole bunch of them get in therapy, and if it doesn't work on Tuesday of last week, they quit. So, and I also blame it on the medical profession. It is what I would say stacked against the average or below average person. There's not enough funds. Uh, there are clinics and things, but. Many times, just three month wait to get in to see somebody, and if you get to wait three months and you're in trauma, that doesn't help. Right. Uh, the clinics, because of limited funds, cannot always prescribe the most up to date and best medications. So it's it's got a lot of problems, and then there's a stigma against it that most people don't believe that. Oh, they'll say things like, what's wrong with you? Oh, and you just kind of moan and groan and they go, well, just go take a walk or uh, go to a movie. Well, that makes the patient feel even worse. So I think we've got a long way to go in this country, probably all all over the world, because 20% of the people in the world are afflicted by mental illness. So I believe that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Well, I'm glad at least you saw that therapy does work. So what would you say if somebody was listening right now and they were on the fence about maybe seeking help or actually owning up to that there may be a problem? Because that's usually the first step. (laughs) The simplest thing is to say, well, you know something's wrong and you don't know what it is. What have you got to lose by either trying medication or going for therapy? Because at any time, if you believe you're not getting help or helped, uh, you can quit. Now, that's maybe on you and it was a mistake. But if you're so afraid of the medication, at least start it and see what happens. Because if you don't reach out and try, you're never going to get well. Right. And for me, uh, I live in Scottsdale, Arizona. And uh, I facilitate two support groups, mental health support groups every week. And people from all walks of life come to my support groups. I can handle about 15 people at a time. Otherwise, I, I just couldn't get it done. And uh, there's a great number of those. I've seen well over a thousand people in the last seven years, maybe a couple thousand. There is a high percentage of them, which again, maybe 10 or 20 percent, but it's in the scope of things, it's high, who start having mental health problems because they were assaulted or raped or beaten as a child. And the scars from that are just too much for them to handle. And these people who are coming to my groups are some of the ones that don't get any help or can't get any help. They're the ones that maybe medication doesn't work for. But there is a truth that there's a lot of people out there who just treat other people like garbage. Yes, unfortunately. I think we all see that every day, and it's just it's disgusting. Yeah, it's pretty bad. I had one fella, a kid, about 12 years old, who... If he did something wrong, his old man would take him down to the basement, tie him to the uh, post, and burn him with cigarettes. So, and you think, oh, that that can't happen. There are plenty of ways that these sadistic people take it out on their kids. And then they want to know why their kids grow up to be serial killers or shooters or bullies themselves. Yeah, it can't be blamed on them, they say. I was just uh, trying to make him feel he didn't do something right. So it is a real problem. I would say that as I look over the time I spent in my groups, no more than 20% of them have gone on to really have great productive lives. They just suffer the all their lives. No way to live. No. Oh, yeah. That's a, that's the thing I say. Most people can't understand how bad it is. And the facilities they go to when they're in bad shape and need to be put in a the hospital, they're suicidal or they're manic and, manic and out of control. And I have many people who have gone into those places, not like the one I went to. They're bad. They maybe are a safe place for the person who is going through it, but 
they don't get the proper treatment from in the information I get from the people who go through it. And they'll do anything to stay out of those places. See, and it shouldn't be that way because obviously if you have a problem and you're willing to go somewhere to work on it, the last thing you need is more bullshit (laughs) to say the least. You know, this is supposed to be a place for you to be able to grow, for you to be able to tell your your soul what is it that's bothering you, what is it that you can't get away from. It's not supposed to be a deterrent. It's supposed to be, okay, let's get you through this. Yeah. So the whole system is broken. Um, If a guy falls down and breaks his leg, they'll fix it right now. But if a guy is mentally ill, they'll just say, well, you're not that bad. You deal with it. So I have uh, been, as I said before, been one of the lucky ones. Although for, let me see, the last, no, from 1970 until I got my last medication that what we all do, who people who are on medication were on cocktails, which means we have more than one medication because one medication just can't do it all. So I got my uh, third or fourth medication in 2000, and that's when my life changed to become almost normal. So it took three medications. Pardon me? So it took three medications for you to feel almost whole four 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 because uh, my psychiatrist was so good at the time back in 1970 or so that he used one medication that wasn't a psych medication that really calmed me down because I was all day long my my chest would be exploding my heart would be beating and pounding and He prescribed a beta blocker, which is not psych, and it did the trick. So that's one of the four. There were three psych medications and then then this beta blocker. Tell you another thing about how I remember my uh, people in my group telling me how what bad experiences they've had with psychiatrists and therapists who act like they don't care or they keep saying you got to take the same medication all the time and they don't try to change medications. And you got to realize that, that just like any other business, the poor number of therapists who really don't do the right thing is very small. But I still hear about them all the time. And it makes me think back to when uh, I was with my old psychiatrist, and this was about 1985, and I got up the guts to tell him about my sexual assault. I told him. He didn't even acknowledge that I said it. Just went on to something else. So as good as he was, he really let me down on that one because that had taken 30 years to be able to uh, voice it, and he didn't give a damn. Wow. So things can happen. You just never know when. Right. That's discouraging because that should have been a huge red flag to, okay, maybe this. Never did talk about it. <laughs> so, you know, um, if you become someone who is clinically depressed or bipolar or schizophrenic, any of the illnesses, you have got to become a hard ass advocate for yourself. You've got to be the one who says, hey, doc, this shit isn't working. Put me on something else or raise the dosage or something. 
because the psychiatrist and the therapist don't really understand if you just say, I'm not doing very well, what that means. They don't they don't know if it means you're jumping out of your skin or you're just a little nervous. So you've got to tell them everything so they can direct their treatment plan, what is actually going on. And I found out all this stuff that I'm talking about through years and years. You know, if I would have known about when my doctor said, oh, that assault doesn't mean anything, I would have challenged him, but I took him at his word. Stupid. So that's what we talk a lot about in our groups. Stand up for yourself and uh, you'll be a lot better off. Absolutely. No one's going to have your best interest like yourself. No. And you know what you need. Well, for the most part, sometimes we don't. And sometimes we can fight like hell. And then, hey, what do you know? It worked. (laughs) So it goes both ways. But absolutely. Do you think that if you would have told someone when you were a child and then saw the proper channels back then, if that would have made a difference? In your life? I, I don't have any idea because 1958 was the dark ages as far as psychiatric treatment goes. Um, and also, you know, today we know that men rape men and women rape women and the whole gamut. Back then, I kind of got the impression over the years that it was a man on woman thing. So if I would have stood up for myself and said something, they would have gone, oh, no, that's, that doesn't happen. So I don't know the answer to that. I was a kid. I was scared. I was blaming myself. I asked myself, why did he do this? Why did he pick me out? You know, I don't have any clue what uh, what I really should have done. Well, right. You were a child and caught off guard, to say the least. Yeah. You just wanted your Coke. yeah and popcorn i didn't get the popcorn (laughs) i mean when that was over did you go back to your friend and watch the movie yeah and i didn't tell him anything and the guy who assaulted me as we were walking out of the bathroom he says can i sit with you and i said no i don't so one thing i never did understand was i mean we were in there for 20 minutes how could nobody else have come in? Was there somebody guarding the door or did they lock the door? I don't know. I don't. After all these years, I don't understand how he pulled it off. Right. I mean, yeah, you would think somebody would need to use the restroom unless maybe all the movies were like starting around the same time. Uh, no, because at that time, you probably don't realize this in most of your Listeners don't realize it. At that time, on Saturdays, they would have double features. And the the first one was maybe an hour long or whatever. So everybody could sit through it. And then the curtain would close down and everybody would run to the concession stand because maybe they had a break of 20 minutes, a half hour. Then you'd run back and uh, watch the next movie. So it isn't like today when you're just getting up and going, I mean, we did that, but at double features, we all went at the same time. Gotcha. I get it. Like an intermission. Yeah, that's exactly what they had. The curtains closed or came down, and they'd have these cartoons of the concession stand. <laughs> Long time ago. 
Actually, some of the movie theaters, at least I know here in Florida, they still have the dance and popcorn and the. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you in Florida? I'm in uh, Pinellas County, St. Petersburg. Yeah, I know. I've been there many times. Yeah. So I've been able to get through all this and I enjoy life now. I've written a book about it. It's called Teetering on the Tightrope, My Bipolar Journey. And I didn't write it to try to make money. Uh, and I never, I'll never make a dime from it, you know, but uh, I wrote it to, to let people know that there is a possibility that things can get better and that your life can turn around. And if you're not the one who's going through bipolar depression, you're a family member or a loved one, things can get better uh, and don't give up. So it's available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble, just to tell you. So go out and buy a couple copies. There you go. <laughs> One to keep in different rooms. Right. <laughs> That's great, though, because people need to realize that you know you're not alone, and it's definitely keep taking your medication. Like you see, so many of these celebrities, they stop taking their medicine, and now they're out running amok. They're walking naked. Shaving their head, like, no, don't get off your meds. Problem is, they do. Probably because they think it's working. Yeah. <laughs> fine. And you know what else is the problem? They go off the medication, and all medications have a half-life. So that means that the medication effects stay in your body for up to a week. So they go off the medication, and they don't feel bad. So they go, oh, I made the right decision. And then a week later, down the toilet they go. It's good Good to know. It's got that week. Yeah. Very cool. Is there anything else you wanted to share? I don't think so. Uh, you mentioned uh, not being alone. Um, loneliness is one of the biggest problems that patients face. And I would suggest that if you're in that category, you seek out a support group somewhere because all of a sudden you'll see, hey, there's a bunch of people out here who are going through exactly what I'm going through, and we can talk about it without giving away any secrets or getting anybody mad. And I have found that a lot of the people who come to my groups uh, – get that the first thing. They never knew that there were other people going through the same thing they're going through. Isn't that crazy to think that you would think you are the only one that this happens to? That's exactly right what they do and what I did. Right. And there's no judgment. You know, you are there to not only tell your story, but you're also there to get clarification. You're there to get hope. You're there to yeah. hear other people's stories and hear how they're transforming their own life to maybe help you with your own. It's very right. powerful. Some of my group members go to four and five meetings a week. In fact, if I had to guess, that's the way they get their uh, social involvement because they're seeing the same people in, in all these different group meetings and they form a, a bond of some kind. Right. Do you do these over Zoom 
or is it? Well, you should do them in person until COVID hit. And since then, it's been all Zoom. I don't think it makes any difference which way you do it. Uh, They're both very effective. Some people say they won't come to a, a, a video group because they'd rather meet in person, but it really doesn't make any difference. Right. The nice thing about being in a video group is that if you need more time, you can keep going and you have time to answer everybody's questions. Uh, when I was doing it live, so often come up to the two hour limit and the people who owned the building would come in and say, you've got to go. And, we, and I could be sitting there with three or four more people I didn't even get in touch with in the meeting. So I like the video aspect of it. I get that. Are you taking any more people? Somebody was interested on joining your group? Oh, yeah. Anybody can come. We get most of our group members from the Phoenix area. And I have one from New Hampshire and one from Tucson. And we're we're with a company called COPA. And you get in touch with COPA. And then they send you out to investigate all their groups that they have. Similarly, this goes on in every major city. Okay, cool. So if you're in St. Petersburg, go online and start searching. You'll find them. Perfect. Don't just have to come to mind because you got to realize I've had as many as 20 some in my group. It does not work. There's too many people, too many distractions, and I, I would get through half of them and then be shut down. So if you if you go to a group that's is don't, and I never tell anybody we're full. I'll let you come. But a lot of them, when there's too many people, they just never come back. You're not getting what you need out of it. You can't. Not possibly. The best number of people to have is about 12 per session. We have groups Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Saturday, Sunday. And Wednesday, yeah, we have groups. We have it every six days a week. There you go. Hey, if you need it, it's there. Yeah, for sure. That's great. Well, that's great, Steve. Thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Thanks for having me. Of course. All links are at the bottom of the show notes, so make sure to check those out. I also have my links down there. That way you can like, follow, subscribe. And I even made it easy for you and have a rate this podcast button. Just a little boop. And there you go. All right, you guys, thank you again so much for listening. I really appreciate it. And we'll talk crime another time. Bye.